Good morning. What's up, everyone? It is, wow, what, Tuesday? It's, yes, it is, it's Tuesday. Holy God, December, well, yesterday was the 4th, so I'm going to assume today's the 5th, something like that. Anyway, to no avail, astronomy podcast to dive into fun, fun, fun conspiracy theories. But, playing the scientific realm. Today we're going over, man. We have gone, we have plans to go to the moon. We are on Artemis's plan on it. But now, guess what? Guess what, dude? That is almost history. Now, we are moving almost further into uh, what is uh, now God going to be. Um, God, all these other moons. Uh, so come join me today on a fun, spectacular ride. How's it going? Pack of Eagle Red uh, Hundreds uh, and a Red Bull. Oh, can I get a, a bag of M&M's? I'm sorry. Peanut. You're awesome. Thank you. Yes, so, we're gonna do... Uh, Peanut. We're gonna do... Today... On the moon. But... I'm gonna look up some stuff. I'm gonna keep an eye out for everybody because... I want everybody to tell me if these are stuff you can hear. So I'm going to play this, everybody. And as I go through it, we're going to talk about it. Thank you. You too, I appreciate it. Working our way out to the far flung corner of the solar system and beyond. Low Earth orbit. The International Space Station is currently alone up there, not including satellites and the Hubble telescope. Have a neighbor. The China National Space Administration has ambitious plans to start launching modules for their own space station in 2021. Wait a minute. Unlike its two predecessors, this one will be permanent. The CNSA will use the Long March 5B rocket to launch materials into orbit. It's thought that the space station will be able to aid future manned moon missions for China, who already made lunar mysteries when Chang'e 4 became the first spacecraft to soft land on the far side of the moon in 2019. The last time humans set foot on the moon themselves was back in 1972. NASA is heading back, however, in the 2020s. The Artemis program will kick off with an uncrewed test flight in November 2021 and aims to land astronauts on lunar soil by 2024, including the first woman. While it's not necessarily part of the Artemis program, NASA is also planning to build the Lunar Gateway, a space station in lunar orbit, a construction which will also begin in 2024. 
it might not be useful in the first part of his asterisks, but it's sure to be an invaluable tool for lunar exploration in the late 2020s, 2030s, and beyond. Mm. Both programs involve global cooperation from leading space agencies. Oh, While it would be fascinating to further explore the moon, nothing beats peering into the far reaches of space. Launched in 1990, the Hubble Telescope is still operational, but it's set to be succeeded by the new and improved James Webb Telescope. Rather than orbiting Earth like Hubble, however, it will orbit the Sun while keeping pace with our home planet from roughly one million Save the planet. Almost save the planet. In the lab and in the flight. Evernet. Heating beyond chemistry. I'm a tri-lift believer because the lift is in the muscle. Miles away. Unfortunately, the James Webb Telescope has been plagued by delays, and its original budget has ballooned to over $10 billion. Be that as it may, it's to launch in October 2021. The telescope will function in a much wider spectrum of light than Hubble, largely focusing on infrared. This means it'll be able to capture low-light stars like red dwarf stars and observe entire galaxies previously hidden from view. Of course, one of the principal goals of space exploration is also to search for signs of extraterrestrial life. In September 2020, researchers claimed to have detected a biosignature in Venus's atmosphere in the form of phosphine gas. That makes the Indian Space Research Organization's proposed orbiter, Shukrayaan-1, especially exciting. With a proposed launch date of 2024, the orbiter would study the composition of Venus's atmosphere. Meanwhile, Russia is planning their own mission to our hellish sister planet. Venera D would consist of a lander and orbiter and launch as early as 2026. NASA is also looking into proposals, including the atmospheric probe Da Vinci and the surface mapping spacecraft Veritas. An even better place to look for signs of life, though, might be Mars. If there was once life there, we're closer than ever to finding it. In February 2021, NASA's Perseverance rover touched down in Jezero Crater, which was once a lake, to search for signs of extraterrestrial life. It was a big month for Mars, also seeing the arrival of the United Arab Emirates orbiter Hope and China's spacecraft Tianwen-1, which will deploy its own rover. Perseverance, or Percy, is also carrying a small autonomous helicopter, Ingenuity, to scout the Martian landscape. Excitingly, the rover will leave well, behind samples of a possible retrieval mission that could launch as early as 20 years late on that. Such a mission would need to consist of a lander, James Scotland. A What's up, ma'am? Hey, James, can you hear the, this video I'm playing on here? Or is it just quiet? With very little music. Hey, James, Scotland, you there? Are you Rem? The solar-powered rover is heading to Oxia Planum, a large plane full of clay deposits.
deposits that was once rich in water. There, oh. it too will search for signs of past Martian life. Oh, yeah. Mind you, while sending rovers to Mars is nice, imagine actually going there ourselves. Well, it might happen sooner than you think. Hopeful future Martian Elon Musk initially had the lofty aim of sending a first unmanned mission in 2022 and a crewed mission in 2024. Huh. Those dates have been pushed back. The unmanned mission is now slated for 2024 and the first humans in 2026. This, of course, depends well, yeah. on the completion of the SpaceX Starship, the vehicle designed to take humans to the Red Planet. Well. It's an ambitious timeline, and the dates aren't set in stone. Well. But when it happens, it could mark just the beginning of our presence in Mars. Well, while well. most of our interest in space exploration revolves around our moon and Mars, Mars also has two intriguing moons of its own, Phobos and Deimos. They haven't gotten much attention to date, but a Japanese yeah, aerospace exploration agency mission to launch in 2024 will change that. By August 2025, the Martian Moons Exploration Probe, or MMX, will have reached and landed on Phobos. It will also perform a flyby of Deimos, the smaller moon, before its mission ends and the probe returns with samples to Earth. It's aiming to find out how Mars's moons were formed. Other space agencies, including NASA, are designing additional equipment for the probe. Moons and planets are all well and good, but let's not forget the little guys. Beyond Mars, by the asteroid belt. Be honest, it could also be called long shot. 
It's less likely than the other projects here, but so crazy ambitious, we had to include it. A research project of the privately funded Breakthrough Initiatives. Starshot would consist of tiny light sail probes called star chips, propelled by ground-based lasers. It's hoped that these could fly by the exoplanet Proxima Centauri b, orbiting Proxima Centauri, the nearest star to our sun and part of the triple star Alpha Centauri system. It's more a proof-of-concept project for now, but it was co-founded by Yuri Milner, the late Stephen Hawking, and Mark Zuckerberg. So it has both brains and money behind it. Breakthrough Initiatives also has other big plans, such as a probe to search for signs of life in the Enceladus plumes. Their ambitions may be wild, but who knows? Maybe they'll have Facebook on Proxima Centauri B one day. And that was what? And these are the most promising and fascinating upcoming space missions to watch out for. What do you think? Is there anything we missed? Let us know in the comments, check out these other clips from Unveiled, and make sure you subscribe and ring the bell for our latest content. So, a little late, I don't know, but I did that on purpose because one of the funnest things that I find about about uh, about astronomy and all the missions that we do and all the things that we're planning is backtracking. I mean, the, the only reason I did I started doing this this podcast was uh, so I could put a timestamp on everything and see. Um, you know, so I could base basically how I mean on a time stamp of uh, things that are going on. Missions are always coming up, always canceled, always. <coughs> oh, hey James, 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 Scotland. Hey, are you on here? <coughs> um, how have you been doing? Uh, I wanted to ask you something or any. Um, if you're still on here, uh, I need to ask some people uh, about some stuff with this, with uh, the being with a live feed on here. Um, well, let me know um, if anybody does get on here and is available. Uh, man, I think the missions that are going to uh, Jupiter moons are going to be awesome, incredible, but they're not coming. They're not going to be uh, shrouded until, well, no, juice already, that one already took off. It's already on its way to Jupiter's moons. Um, juice, they had the name of juice. Um, God, I'm going to run out of these. Huh? Yeah, it's about to happen. It is about to happen.
magma. I'm pretty amazed about the about the missions that are that are gonna be coming up. Uh, but uh, the ones that are, that are going to the moons of Saturn and Jupiter are the ones that I just cannot wait. I mean, those are gonna be the ones where. I think if there's gonna be life, that's pretty much where they're gonna be. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I've got a couple more to fill it, but I can finally empty. local moving and helps you deal with mismatched closing Cosmos is all there is. Everything that has ever been and will ever be. Okay. 2022 in was the best. Space in 2023, everybody. So, here it is. Um, yeah, this one. Alright. And then, the first people that come on here, I need to. Best right, year for space out. missions in quite some time. Following the launch of JWST at the very huh? end of 2020, 2022, saw the telescope oh, yeah, unfold and start capturing We're all on the North Dog. images of the infrared universe. We had an incredibly successful start to the NASA Artemis program, which will see them land humans back on the moon before the decade is over, as well as more SpaceX launches than ever. The successful dark <laughs> which might come in handy <laughs> one day. And so much now let's turn our attention and see some of the most exciting missions and updates we can expect in the next 12 months. It will include unscrewed moon landers, commercial space telescope launches, missions to free objects in the solar system.
born. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's like, um, it just never ends. Every time I get you another page, it's like four more. <laughs> Good for business. The mission is also being able to look evidence of biosignatures on Europa's surface, which are chemicals or compounds that are created abundantly by life. And so the presence of them is a great piece of evidence that life may be present following Juice, another Easter mission called Euclid will launch later in the year. The Euclid mission is now scheduled to launch on a space Falcon 9 rocket, possibly as early as July 2023. I have a previous video talking about the drama surrounding which rocket will actually launch this telescope. So check that out if you want more details on This telescope will head to the same spot in space as JWS called Lagrange Point 2, it will probe the dark universe. It will basically observe billions of galaxies from nearby to perform the earliest that it's possible to see. Seeing how these objects change with distance and time, this will let it study two mysterious components of the universe, dark matter and dark energy. While they aren't as evil as they sound, they are strange things we don't know much about at all. But hopefully the Euclid mission can start to unlock more properties of these invisible components of our universe. In October, we can then expect the launch of the super-cooled Psyche mission. This is a probe that will head to a strange asteroid called 16 Psyche, which is very metal-rich and might well be the remains of a planet that never finished forming. I have plans to make a full video about this mission because it's very exciting, so stay tuned for more on that. We do have another exciting asteroid mission to look forward to this year too. NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission landed on a nearby asteroid named Bennu in October 2020. It collected a sample of the asteroid, apparently between 400 grams and a kilogram of material, and it's bringing that sample back to Earth to be studied. The drop-off should happen sometime in September, so we can look forward to directly studying the composition of an asteroid. Which is going to be super interesting, and offer an insight into the formation of the solar system. The probe will actually then go on to visit another asteroid after it drops the sample off, but again, that mission deserves a longer video all about it. Slightly closer to home, 2023 will see Amazon begin to launch projects for its Project Kuiper which will be its 3,000 satellite constellation to rival SpaceX's Starlink network. We'll also see some new rockets launch, which might be able to carry future satellites into space, including Blue Origin's big new Glenn rocket and ULA's Vulcan Center. Moving to a lunar focus, there are a bunch of private companies that will send probes to the moon and even land on the surface for the first time. These will all be uncrewed, and I think it's going to be a bit of a Sink. race in the end. In that case, include the space launch, Japanese-built Hakuto Probe this. rovers built Mother. by Japan and the United Arab Emirates. Okay. I would expect this one to be the first to land on the moon, since it's already launched and should arrive at the moon by April. Other contenders include two U.S. companies called Astrobotics oh, shit, that and been way too much. which are both NASA-backed and are scheduled to arrive Oops. on the moon at similar times and land to study the mm. lunar environment. There isn't scheduled to be a NASA lunar mission launched in 2023 as part of the The agency will be hard at work to prepare for the Artemis II launch in 2024. 
which will take humans on a journey around the moon. And a really exciting moment this year will be the announcement of the group of Artemis astronauts that could go on that space-breaking mission. We will also see a reveal of the prototype suits that will be used for this mission, which will also be really interesting to see. There will then be landing attempts from the Indian and Japanese national agencies. And the Indian one is especially interesting, since their last attempt in 2019 actually crashed on the moon. So we're hoping for a successful launch. In 2023, we'll have a lot of to keep up with today. The most we've ever seen in a year. SpaceX will continue to ferry astronauts to the International Space Station using its Crew Dragon space. Big thing SpaceX. Scheduled to finally do the same thing after a whole raft of delays to their crew craft. The pick of the bus you crude the bastards! Holy shit! What are you doing? It's currently scheduled. I know you're still alive. We'll have a crew of four commercial astronauts, and we'll orbit the Earth. It's crazy. What are they doing? Which is higher than any crew yeah. mission since Apollo. The big thing Love you. is that it will actually be right back over. <laughs> I'll be right back over. Oh, I'm just going to take this to her. Oh. Yeah, stay in here. No, you are. I'll be right back. Oh, tired. Alright. She loves it. I just know she may work her ass off. Man, real hard, a lot. Including Saturn, what? Uranus, and the best exoplanet candidates that might be habitable. There will be some smaller oh, yeah. things happening too, like new yeah. science missions being sent to the ISS, <laughs> new NASA planes being tested, like the X 57 and X 59, and many, many more, including development oh, yeah. of ground based telescopes. But none of them explicitly made my list because I don't think any of them will actually become operational in 2023. Please let me know what you're looking forward to in space this year. And especially let me know if I missed something that you're particularly excited about. Also, do let me know in... Oh, no. Hey, wine guy. What? 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 God damn it. Christopher. Uh, hey, you guys. Weinburn. Hey, you guys there. Oh. What up, Bentley? What up, Bentley?
Okay. Now, I've got to see if, okay, anybody, hey, Christopher, born, um, wine garden, anybody, can you guys hear me on here? Wine garden, I love that name. Um, Christopher Bourne. Thank you guys for joining. Is anyone on here? Or or can anyone hear me? Maybe no one can hear me. Maybe that's the problem. Um. Huh. I don't know. It's weird. in the game. Can you hear me at all? Uh, is my microphone working? I can't tell. I just, oh, hello. Hey, what's up, man? How you doing, Skin the Game? You can hear me? Okay. I got a question. Can you hear if I play this? Let me know if you can play, if you hear this. Oh, wait, not that one. Not that one. Not that one. Whoops, I'm sorry. Uh, all right, this, let me, can you hear, uh, this? Hang on, let me turn this shit off. Turn that down. All right. Now, can you hear that commercial? For those who are not aware, all senior citizens can register for a $3,197 food allowance which can be used in any store such as Walmart to pay for their food to claim. Oh, good. Tap the button down below and follow the instructions to get your $3,197 food allowance. Okay. It doesn't matter if you're dead broke, have no job. I don't care if you can't read. Any American could get up to seven. Oh, good. All right, now. We're exploring the worlds beyond our pale blue dot in more detail than ever before. Okay, can you hear this video? Finally find extraterrestrial life. This is unveiled. About the extra testicle life upcoming space missions, both planned and proposed. Are you a fiend for facts? Are you constantly curious? Then why not subscribe to Unveiled for more clips like this one and ring the bell for okay. more fascinating content. 
We'll be starting with destinations closest to home, working our way out to the far-flung corners of the solar system, and beyond. For now, let's begin in low Earth orbit. The International Space Station is currently alone up there, not um, through satellites and the okay. Hubble telescope, but it will soon have a neighbor. The China National Space Administration has ambitious plans to start launching modules for their own space station in 2021. Right. It will be China's third after Tiangong 1 and 2. Right. The intention is that unlike its two predecessors, this one will be permanent. You have fallen into Event Horizon with John Michael Godian. These Event Horizons are pretty cool. Alright. Let's see. 10. In 1995, he was awarded a Hubble Fellowship. He joined the University of Rochester as an assistant professor of physics and astronomy in 1996. He was promoted to associate professor in 2000 and to professor in 2004. Professor Frank's research is in the general area of theoretical astrophysics, and in particular, the hydrodynamic and magnetohydrodynamic evolution of matter ejected from stars. He is the author of three books, most recently, Light of the Stars, Alien Worlds, and the Fate of the Earth. Adam Frank, welcome back to the program. It is great to be back and talk with you guys again. Now, in your new book, you, you go into uh, first... Your own story and how you became interested in astrobiology, and this is something that happened to me too. I remember in the 1980s, I was just looking at the stars blazing overhead as a 10-year-old, around about 1984-85, and wondering, is there anybody out there? And I still have not answered this question, and none of us have. So give us a, a, a sort of a, a feel for what drove Adam Frank to look and think on the concept of alien life? Well, I've been thinking about it, yeah, since I was five years old. And the reason why I wrote this book, the, the Little Book of Aliens, was to be able to kind of give people a sense of how far we've come from when I was a kid. So for me, it began when I was five years old, literally, because I wandered into my dad's office and in his library on the, the lower shelf where I could reach, he had all of his 1960s pulp sci-fi magazines, you know, like Isaac Asimov's Astounding Stories. And I remember looking at those covers with, uh, you know, their bug-eyed monsters and guys in spacesuits and alien landscapes. And I was like, I was stunned. I was like, this is it. This is, this is all I want to know about. And so it was very clear at that moment. And you know, my dad was a writer, but he was really into science and science fiction. So he saw my interest and he took me to, you know, the Hayden Planetarium, the planetarium in New York City, regularly, much to the chagrin of my sister. But, uh, and he also fed me a steady diet of science fiction, of great science fiction. He would put in my hands, you know, Doom long before I was really ready for it. Isaac Asimov stories. I remember him waking me up one night to uh, watch late night TV. This was back in the 70s. And he had, he watched, we watched uh, Forbidden Planet together, right? With its vision of a advanced alien civilization that had disappeared because of their own folly. So for, 
you know, this question has just been with me since I was a kid. And then when I entered graduate school and, you know, became an astronomer, it never left. I, I didn't work in SETI, and we can talk about why, but I never lost the interest in the question. And then in this modern era, as the exoplanet revolution began and astrobiology really became a going concern about 10, 15 years ago, I started my own research program in it. And now pretty much it's almost all I do. I had a similar experience. My dad was an engineer, and I loved sci-fi, and he was picking all the books and everything, and, and you know, along with my mother, who was an amateur geologist, we were sticking, sticking all the books in my hands, and I was reading everything I could and watching reruns of Captain Kirk and all of that in the mid-1980s, and that really started to make me wonder, but the thing is, is that how far we've, we've come... <laughs> We didn't even know exoplanets existed back then. Right. It was still an open right. question. Yeah. Now we have thousands and thousands of confirmed exoplanets. You know, they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere, which ticks a box for life in the universe. The question is, is why don't we see an example of a biosphere from a distance? And why is it so ambiguous? So ambiguity in the question of aliens, how are we going to deal with this? How do we... How do we how do we proceed with things like the James Webb Space Telescope and characterizing exoplanet atmospheres? How are we going to nail this down? Yeah, well, the interesting thing is about, like, well, why haven't we seen any evidence yet? It's because we couldn't look. I mean, that's really the basic. We, we only, you know, gained the capacity to look, like, a few months ago on some level, right? You know, first of all, for most of astronomical history, we did not have, we didn't even know whether there were any planets to look for, you know? And we believe planets are the basis of life, that you need a, a surface in order to get the, you know, have a puddle of water or something to have the chemistry get going, the biochemistry get going. We didn't know whether there were there any planets until 1995. And that's when we discover our first exoplanet. And then we start building up this census of exoplanets. That took some time. But really the most important thing is that in order to find a biosphere, you have to be able to see the planet in a way that, you know, these planets are, of course, light years away, tens, hundreds of light years away. You need to be able to somehow, through the light, the imprints in the light, be able to get an indication, signature, that there is a biosphere there. And literally, we, have, we haven't had the telescopes to do that until, on some level, the JWST. The JWST is the first telescope that can do this process of that we call atmospheric characterization. And even JWST is right on the hairy edge. Like, it, it probably does not have what we need to see a biosphere unless we get really, really lucky. But it's, it, but it is the first one that has really what we need uh, on some, on any level at all. And then the telescopes that are going to follow it in the next 10, 20, 30 years are really going to have, you know, they're going to be tuned. So what comes after the JWST, the next big telescope of this space telescope is already, what's it called? It's called the Habitable Worlds Observatory. Like astronomy is now all in and that zillion dollar telescope is going to be tuned to be able to find what we call biosignatures. Or if we're looking for technological life, or if we're looking for life that, you know, has industry, that harvests energy for, uh, to, 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 to do things for civilization, what we call technosignatures. So we finally, you know, we couldn't do it before because we couldn't do it before. Now, in regards to looking at radio, 
the radio astronomers. Now, they're, they're in a better position because the radio telescopes have been capable of picking up alien signals, the wow signal, things like that, for many decades earlier than optical astronomy or infrared astronomy. So how in-depth have they actually looked in radio? For example, the bathtub you know, of the ocean. So what is our survey of looking at star systems, looking for radio signals? It seems to me we've barely just started still. Is that, is that a good sense of that? Yeah, that's a great way of characterizing it. I mean, so I think people have to understand that what we call classic, what I call classic SETI, right? The classic SETI searches where you're, you know, you're using radio. And in particular, in the beginning, people were really using radio to detect a beacon, you know, a, a signal that somebody was purposely, you know, putting out that was aimed at you. Right. And they, that, they have to make these assumptions because if you didn't do that, if you assumed that they were just you know, broadcasting in all directions, then you ended up needing a, uh, a, a transmitter that was so powerful it was almost a star. So there was this, you know, uh, underlying the kind of technologies we had, you needed somebody to be beaming a message at you. So I'll talk a little bit about that later. Why, you know, for me, that was always a little bit problematic, but it was also the only thing they could do. So it was fine. But people also had this idea that like, oh, you know, Frank Drake did the first search of this kind, classic SETI search in 1960. And since then, well, of course, we've searched the whole sky and we haven't found anything. So, you know, where are they? It must be uh, that there's no alien life. And the problem is with that is it's not true. And it's not true for the saddest of sad reasons. There has never been a lot of SETI, a lot of SETI searching, because there was never money for SETI searching. So, you know, because of the giggle factor, and we can talk about what the giggle factor is, but because SETI got associated with UFOs and little green men, you know, it was always uh, looked upon, it was always a little marginal, more than a little marginal. So the, the pioneers of SETI were very, very brave scientists had to put up with a lot of scorn and also there was just never any funding so if you think of if, if you want to add up all the SETI searches that have ever been done all the times somebody searched a star for signals of intelligent life if you so imagine that the the stars are you know the sky is an ocean right and you have to search that ocean if you add them all up how much of the ocean has been looked for looked at and the answer turns out to be a hot tub Basically, we've looked at a hot tub worth of the ocean and yeah, and we didn't find any fish, so to speak, you know, and are you then going to say like, well, there's no fish in the ocean. So, you know, the fact is we've just never searched, right? There's other than a few brave pioneers. There never has been much steady searching. So, you know, the claim that, you know, we've looked and we haven't found is just the, the idea of a great silence. There is no great silence because nobody's been able, nobody's had the funding to listen. So, yeah, so I think that, that that's. A really important thing for people to understand because now finally not so you know, not only with radio but more so this explosion of what has happened in what i call you know, i think the whole field should be called techno signatures and seti is just one part of it with techno signatures this field we are going to be looking we finally have the funding to start looking for biosignatures and techno signatures and you know nasa's all in on it the astronomical community is all in on the search for life in the universe and so finally now we're going to start looking it should not be surprising if we find it though because one of the things that bothers me is that you'll get a lot of people saying well we're alone the problem with
with that is that you can't ever prove in the universe that you're alone. You can only prove that you're not alone by picking up some sort of a type of signature. So, but if you're going to start saying that life on Earth only happened here, then you're saying that an organic chemical process, which is what life ultimately is, is unique to Earth. Mm -hmm. And this is a problem. And that, that gets into the, the, uh, the scorn factor in that we should statistically be part of a population, right? In other words, we should expect to find a technosignature eventually, right? Well, I think, you know, it's funny because as I talk about in the book, right, so much of the book is about sort of the balance between uh, alien optimists and alien pessimists. So the book starts with the history, right, which begins, you know, 2,500 years ago. It's amazing how long people have been asking this question. You know, with sort of the battle between Aristotle, who was a pessimist, who said the Earth is the only planet in the universe that has life, and Democritus, who was an atomist, who said, no, 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 every planet, every star is going to have planets, and every planet has the possibility for life. So that, that battle has been going on for a long time. And what's remarkable now is, you know, uh, over the entire history, that 2,500-year history, it's been just about opinions, right? There was no data. And so it's amazing now is we're about to get data. Now, I'm an optimist, but I also, let's unpack this a little bit, right? Because you look at tonight's sky and you look at all the exoplanets and, you know, you're sort of overwhelmed in that paper I wrote with Woody Sullivan back in 2016, where we worked out how many habitable zone planets there were in the universe. You know, it turns out to be 10 billion trillion planets and each one of those planets is an experiment right nature has run the experiment and life and possibly civilizations so it's asking a lot to say that every one of those experiments failed right but the problem is until you know we don't really know yet what goes into making life or allowing life to thrive so that you get a you know a biosphere or eventually a technosphere so so if there are one if there are 10 billion trillion habitable zone planets, I and mean, that's not an inhabited planet, that's a planet where life, you know, where liquid water could form on the surface. If the odds per, you know, per planet is, is, you know, less than one in 10 billion trillion, then you've just run out of planets, right? You know, it's a kind of a probabilistic thing. Now, I don't think that's the case, right? But I, you know, it's that, it's really still my opinion that that's not the case. So so the statistics alone, while for you and I probably make us lean in the direction of there's got to be life elsewhere, until you do the search, you just, you just don't know. And that's what's so exciting. That's why I wrote this book, is I wanted people to see, finally, right, finally, we're going to start getting data. And, and one last point on this along these lines. You know, if while you can never prove there's no other life, if you, you can start putting upper limits, you know, or limits on it, right? If we search for a hundred years and we search thousands of stars and we don't find any, that's at least beginning to tell us that, okay, we can't prove there's no other life out there, but we are beginning to prove that it's rare, right? So that's what we'll see. Now, in regards to thinking about alien life and thinking about what we might look for, and there's no guarantee that technological alien civilizations look like what we think they will, they may be indistinguishable from nature for all we know. But things like the Kardashev scale and the Drake equation, do you think they're getting long in the tooth and that we need to rethink just how we look for aliens? 
That is a great question. And I think that is what's so exciting about this moment. Because when you look at all of astrobiology, which used to be called exobiology, you know, the, the thinking about life in the universe, I'm actually working on a New York Times op-ed on this, exactly this point. We've always, or almost always, thought, began with the terrestrial analog, right? We just tended to think that life whether it's it's smart life or dumb life, right? So when I make that distinction, dumb life, I do not mean any disrespect, is microbial or forests. It's the, you know, it's the stuff that doesn't build simulation, civilizations. It's very sophisticated, right? But I'm just going to use that distinction. Whether people were thinking about dumb or smart life, they just tended to sort of use Earth life as the, uh, as the example and the template. And I think one of the most exciting things that is happening now, and I talk about this in the book, is because finally we're finally really committing, the scientific community is committing to the search, we're starting to systematize, right? We're starting to look at our ideas and really say, like, wait a minute, right? We don't want to get mistaken by the very particular history of Earth's biological lineage. So what we you see a number of people doing in our group. So, you know, I am the principal investigator of NASA's first grant to do to look for techno signatures. What everybody's beginning to do is think agnostically. What does it mean to plan a search that is agnostic about the life that you find, right? You're not expecting it to be carbon based. You're not expecting it to have DNA. You're not, if it's a civilization, you're not expecting the, the, you know, the minds which built the civilization to use integers as the basis of their, you know, their mathematics. So that's the really exciting thing now. And it really stretches, the fun part is it really stretches the imagination. So in the book, I'm trying to give people some understanding of what this agnostic thinking looks like. Because that's going to be the best bet at making of whether we find, you know, I'm looking for, for biospheres or technospheres. The problem of habitable zones as we see them, we think in terms of liquid water on the surface of a planet that's essentially an analog of Earth, but we have found from our own solar system that ice shelf over oceans is more common. So do you think that what, what the real solution to the Fermi paradox is, is that most intelligent life is locked under ice and completely unaware of the cosmos because <laughs> I can't see it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is, is that a good direction to go? But the thing is, do we have any hope of ever detecting intelligence under an ice shell moon outside of our own solar system? No. <laughs> well, not at least right now. I mean, that's, you know, in some sense, it's true. The habitable zone was a great idea, right? It's one of those classic ideas. You know, in the book, I talk about how that era of the 1950s, from 1950 to 1960, that so much amazing foundational ideas were laid down, right? And you know, no matter if you're, no matter how you're interested in life in the universe, you got to pay attention to that decade, uh, even for the pop culture stuff that got laid down. Uh, so the habitable zone, which is the idea that what life will need water to get started, was a great idea because there really is reasons to think that you know water is pretty amazing as a solvent. But as we've seen from our own, our own solar system, as you point out, we've got at least two or three or four other places where there are oceans, huge oceans, more water than on Earth, underneath, you know, uh, underneath moons, you know, with, like you said, ice-covered moons. But as you say, the problem is that any, if a civilization develops under those, 
are in those that we'd never know. Or even if you have this intelligence, even a biosphere under those worlds, we would never know. So I think we just, you know, if we're, if we're looking for life at this point on distant worlds, we have to be shooting for the stuff on worlds that can, that will have bio, you know, that have detectable biosignatures. So that's a subset. And, you know, maybe we're going to end up missing the boat because of that. But, you know, you can only, you can only look where you can look, right? It's, it's the analogy of the, the keys under the lamppost. I mean, beginning, that's where you look. You look for the keys under your lamppost. And if you don't find them, then, then you try and be more ingenious about how to look, you know, in the dark. If we want to answer the ice shell question, we're just going to have to conquer the galaxy. That's, that's, it's simple as that. And it's the only way we're, that's the only, I agree. We just, we should get started, start building those, you know, those starships now, build the Battlestar Galactica now, and then we'll be ready. Then we can, yeah. Then, then we can we can start you know thinking about it now rogue planets so this galaxy can sit here and toss out rogue planets earth-like planets that are covered in ice again but with geothermal energy they may maintain oceans and that opens up the idea of intergalactic <laughs> inhabited planets that that i mean how would we ever <laughs> that then it gets into to prove that you're alone again in other words if you're unless you detect a techno signature you're not going to find a way to know if there is other life in the universe because it's just not going to present itself and you can never know so the only thing we can do is look for techno signatures essentially right and, and biosignatures to an extent but that's you know getting close what is the distance limit in other words, all right, so we're looking for techno signatures in whatever form they might be, Arnold Louvers or radio signals, whatever. How far can we look, even just within the Milky Way? Before I answer that, I just want to talk about how cool rogue planets are. Because if you're a space pirate, like, where else do you want to be based but on a rogue planet, you know? So uh, I love the idea of rogue planets. But it's a good question, right? We're not going to, especially... Now, you know, just to your point, though, I'm not sure if rogue planets could be intergalactic. Because I don't think you'd have to toss a planet out with an escape velocity to get it out of the actual well, gravitational well of the galaxy. So I have a feeling those... I mean, that might happen once or twice. I have once or twice. I don't know. But I have a feeling that, that most rogue planets will be interstellar, not intergalactic. But it'd be an interesting calculation to do whether or not you could ever get the escape velocity to actually... Well, I, I think another question would be is if you toss out a star system, does its planets go with it? I, I would assume that they would. I think it is. I think I've seen papers on that. I think that the planets in general do get, unless it's super-duper violent, you have to really accelerate a star super fast to unbind its planets. But I think that, but I'm not, I would, don't hold me to that. Would life, would life survive an encounter at the center of a galaxy with a supermassive black hole in that radiation environment? And there's lots of questions because tossing planets out, yeah, that's a, that's a, <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other, whole it's other, a whole thing. other animal. Um, but okay, so, but so your question of distance, I mean, at right now, right, it all depends on the technology you have. And so right now, I don't, you know, I'm not, not going to, I'm going to, I'm sort of making an educated guess. I think we're really talking about, if we're looking, talking about the method of atmospheric characterization, which we can unpack more, but, you know, just to sum up, atmospheric characterization is the ability to peer into a planet's atmosphere and, and uh, detect signatures in the light, like use the light that passes through the atmosphere to look for fingerprints of either biology, of, you know, a, a biosphere, 
more technology at Technosphere. And I think the limits uh, are hundreds of light years. I don't think you're going to be able, at this point, you know, you're not going to be able to get to thousands and thousands of light years. And the reason for that is you just need a lot of photons. You need a lot of light to be able to get a really good spectra, to be able to have enough light that you can break it up and compone, look at the, the, the different wavelengths of light. You just, you know, you need a lot of signal, basically. And to get a lot of signal, you need to capture a lot of photons. And to capture a lot of photons, you'd see you're a lot better off if the thing is closer. So I think the next 30 years or so, um, and some of us, you know, maybe one of your listeners in Wilker, who knows more about this than I do, another astronomer, I, I think we're looking at hundreds, you know, hundreds to a thousand light years, which is the neighborhood, right? Which is like, that is still the, that is, you know, just down the street, so to speak, for the galaxy. Yeah, that brings into interesting scenarios because anybody in the galaxy that's, that's doing what we're doing and looking, the vast majority of the galaxy, basically all of it passed you know, around about 100 light years has no idea we're even here well, other than if they've looked for biosignatures on this planet. Well, I mean, I do, you know, with bigger telescopes, you can go farther. I mean, at some point, hopefully, you know, if we make it through all the mess that we're in right now, you know, possible nuclear war to climate change and maybe even AI, you know, who knows. But then, you know, at some point we may build telescopes that are huge. We, you know, we could build interferometers in space that would be able to see out thousands or ten thousand. So it's, right now, this is just a technological limitation of our age, you know, and a, a civilization that's more advanced than us, and I'm even talking like just, you know, 100 years, 200, 500 years, would probably be able to detect biosignatures, you know, across, across much further, maybe even, you know, tens of thousands of light years. An alien civilization that has a, an interferometer or such, you know, telescope that, um, you know, is the size of New Jersey in orbit, you know, and looking at the Milky Way galaxy, trying to characterize its exoplanets several million years ago, knows about this planet. In other words, this planet has been screaming its biosignatures for billions of years. <laughs> it, we have, yeah, yeah, billions of years. Our planet has betrayed us. Yeah. We can't keep quiet, <laughs> at least about the biosphere here. So chances are that... While we may be ignorant still on the question of, of alien biospheres, it is possible that someone else in the galaxy confirmed and answered their are we alone question by looking at Earth. Is that viable? I think that's, you know, yeah. I mean, what, what reason would you have to not consider that possibility, right? You have to really have, and this is the interesting thing in this moment that we're in, where you know, as I said, so the, there was this long history of the giggle factor that any mention of particularly intelligent, like the search for intelligent life, you know, civilizations, was met with raised eyebrows and, you know, a snicker. And, you know, this was, again, because of the association with UFOs. And what happened in particular was in... All right. Sorry. I've got to stick with that. I meant to stick with the um, our missions. And I went over to signal signatures. You're wrong. It's cash out time for every American because the U.S. is sending everyone a free $16,800 right now. You get this payout in under 48 hours and it's completely free. The sign up takes less than five minutes and there's no personal information required. From the point you sign up, get ready because 48 hours later, you get the $16,800 health grant that you can spend on anything. Hit that ATM up, get that car you want, or heck, put a down payment on a house with all the extra funds.
It doesn't matter if you're dead broke, have no job. I don't care if you can't read. Any American could get up to $17,000 after watching this video due to a new government subsidy. If you make under $50,000, you can get... We're going to the Red Planet. Today, we will discuss all the present and future missions to Mars. So, is SpaceX's first crewed mission to Mars just three years away? Company founder and CEO Elon Musk said that he's highly confident SpaceX will launch people on the Red Planet in 2026, declaring that the milestone would come even earlier in 2024, if we get lucky. Mars One has a chance to be the first one to colonize Mars. They announced a plan to settle Mars in 2024. Every two years after the initial launch, a new crew will join the colony. Mars One will involve humankind as the mission's audience, generating a worldwide media event around the first crewed flight to and settlement on Mars. The trick of the mission is about having as little complexity as possible. The most important simplification is that the whole crew will emigrate to Mars for it. The team will spend the rest of their lives working and living on Mars. That's right. While supporting human life on Mars is not a minor goal, it is far easier and safer than bringing them all back to Earth. If they had to return, a fully functional and fueled return rocket would have to be constructed on Mars without any human supervision. Extraordinarily complex and expensive. Instead, Mars One will supply the first and following crews with water, food, and oxygen by mining resources from Mars's soil and atmosphere. All components needed to complete the mission can currently be built by existing suppliers. Mars One has visited many different companies that together can deliver the complete package. To finance the mission, Mars One will generate an international hype around the project. The audience will help decide as the settlers' team are selected, follow their extensive training and preparing for the mission, and observe their settling on Mars once they've arrived. The astronauts will share their expertise as they build their new homes, conduct experiments, and explore. The mission itself will provide scientific and social knowledge that will be accessible to everyone. And we also want to try to send an uncrewed mission there in two years. Musk shared in an interview, the two-year target intervals are prescribed by orbital dynamics. Earth and Mars align positively for interplanetary launches just once every 26 months. The vehicle that will take these Mars trips is the 165-foot-tall starship, which will launch from Earth on a giant rocket known as Super Heavy. These crafts will be fully and rapidly reusable. Super Heavy will return to Earth for vertical touchdowns shortly after liftoff. Starship will fly from Earth orbit to Mars and back again many times. Starship will be powerful enough to drive itself off both Mars and the Moon, which have much weaker gravitational pulls than Earth's. Musk has long emphasized that he founded SpaceX in 2002 principally to help humanity become a multi-planet species. He also has a pretty unique desire. He wants to die on Mars, just not on impact. <laughs> Musk joked, UAE Mars colony by 2117. 
Supporting human life on Mars is still comparatively far off by Earthling standards. The UAE Human Crewed Mission is slated for 2117. Still, the Dubai Future Foundation is already taking steps to ensure the science and technology solutions needed to thrive on the Red Planet are getting prepared. The MBR Space Settlement Challenge spend up to DH2 million in seeding funds for 35 scientist teams out of 260 applicants from across the world to develop solutions for different challenges on living in constrained environments. Now, among these, six teams are working on technology that could be used to support sustainable food and water production on Mars. They will focus on long-term space settlements that minimize energy and resource consumption while maximizing nutrition, food, and water production. For people to live long-term on Mars and bypass replicating the waste creation that has contributed to climate change here on Earth, food consumption has to be as efficient as possible with a maximum amount of recycled materials. The team of scientists from the University of Arizona has a brilliant solution to this challenge. Mushrooms! <laughs> Mushrooms are biological recyclers that can turn an inedible waste of other planets like stems and husks into growing more mushrooms on a high nutritional value. The team suggests that growing mushrooms alongside other crops can reduce the reliance on food sent from Earth while giving a more balanced and healthier diet, leading to healthier, happier, and more productive residents. Another team from the U.S., ChemVita Factory, works on a prototype that replicates photosynthesis to turn an astronaut's breath made of carbon dioxide into glucose, a building block of nutrition. NASA crewed missions in 2030. NASA is also pushing human exploration boundaries toward the moon and Mars. As a part of the Artemis program, NASA is working to send the first woman and next man to the moon by 2024. They plan to establish a permanent human presence within the next decade to uncover new scientific discoveries and generate the foundation for private companies to build a lunar economy. It all begins with U.S. companies delivering scientific instruments and technology demonstrations to the lunar surface. They are followed by a spaceship called the Gateway in orbit around the moon, supporting human and scientific missions. Human landers will take astronauts to the surface of the moon. The agency's massive space launch system rocket and Orion spacecraft will be the fortitude to build the gateway and transport astronauts between the moon and the earth. NASA also continues to cooperate with companies to discuss the challenges of living in space, such as using existing resources, options for deploying trash, and more. Missions to the moon are about 1,000 times distant from Earth than missions to the International Space Station, needing systems that can reliably operate far from home, sustaining the needs of human life, and yet be light enough to launch. Now, these technologies will become increasingly more critical for the 34-million-mile trip to Mars. Mars. Exploration of the moon and Mars is intertwined. The moon allows testing new tools, instruments, and equipment that could and will be used on Mars, including human habitats, life support systems, plus technologies and practices that could help us build self-sustaining positions away from Earth. Living on the gateway for months will allow researchers to understand how the human body responds in a proper deep space environment before committing to the years-long journey to Mars. European Space Agency crewed missions in 2030. NASA and the private space industry have their sights set on putting a human on Mars. 
Europe, however, has slightly more modest goals. Get humans on the moon and build a base there, and only then continue on Mars. The European Space Agency, ESA, has declared its intentions to send astronauts to our nearest satellite by 2030. If all goes to plan, we will see European-developed robots sent to the moon's surface. This return to the moon considers a series of human missions beginning in the early 2020s to see astronauts communicate with robots on the lunar surface from orbit. Ultimately, we will see a sustained infrastructure for research and exploration where humans will live and work for prolonged periods. They will put into practice the lessons of the International Space Station to build a facility akin to those we see in Antarctica today. In the nearest future, the moon can become a place where the nations of the world work together. Plans for the mission include strategies to explore the unknown parts of the moon, as human and robot exploration of the satellite is principally focused on the surface that faces the Earth and that around the equator. The ESA-led mission, which will collaborate with others, including NASA, will learn more about the polar regions hand-in-hand with robots. In the next couple of years, we will see explorers at the lunar poles, exploiting the sunlight for solar power and performing research to benefit life on Earth and understand our place in the universe. Y'all know my goal in life is to help people live the best life they can. Because I'm living a pretty good life. But... When will humans land on Mars? This is something that we've been dreaming about for a long time. And now with new propulsion systems, with new... Re- exploration of Mars, we're getting closer and closer to that point when we're going to see those first footsteps on Mars. But where will they go? Mars is a exciting place to visit, but it's also very dangerous, hazardous. There's long delays in communication, and choosing a landing spot to go to is very important to start building up the logistics and infrastructure to support long-term science base on Mars. So working on this problem is my guest today. His name's Rick Davis. He is the Assistant Director for Science and Exploration at NASA's Science Mission Director, and he leads the team who is working on selecting landing sites on Mars for a future human mission to Mars. Obviously, it's a very complicated process, very nuanced. A lot of ideas are in the works, a lot of challenges, and some surprising requirements to find a place to land on Mars and to be able to start to study the red planet with human beings. It's a fascinating conversation, one of the best I've done. I'm sure you're going to really enjoy it. Rick is uh, is deeply knowledgeable and had a lot of really interesting insights. So enjoy the interview. Like I know people want to go to Mars, mm-hmm. and if they want just like to get a sense of what it would feel like to stand on the surface of Mars, what is the most Mars-like place on Earth? 
Oh, there are actually a bunch of them, and that's ex- really cool. We, we have work underway looking at a lot of these sites right now because we can actually go practice operations with rovers on these places. Um, and so I'll just give you some. Uh, the Gobi Desert in uh, Mongolia is one. The Atacama Desert is another. I've actually been hiking up volcanoes in Ecuador where you get up a certain level and the, 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 the soils all have that sort of rust color that Mars has. And I mean, it's really pretty dramatic. And, and so you, there are, there are a number of really good sites. We call them analog sites all across this planet. We use them for different reasons. One of the best ones actually is in Antarctica in the dry valleys. Um, and they're all, it, that, if it weren't so difficult to get there, a lot of our work would be there because mm. it is essentially a desert. It has um, ice sheets. Mars has ice sheets, and it's just got a lot of the same temperatures are extreme as they are on Mars. And it's really an amazing site for you know for being in a Mars-like environment. But. Even Antarctica, like the dry deserts of Antarctica, which is one of the most hostile places on Earth, that's a paradise compared to actually being on Mars. So, so then if you were actually transported on Mars that, that reminded you of the dry deserts of Antarctica, what else would you be experiencing being in that place? So there's a number of things. So just to give you some, just some, for example, um, the pressure at Mars is is like being at 135,000 feet in our atmosphere. I mean, it's basically almost a vacuum. Um, so it's not like you're you know going to take off you know your suits. I mean, you're basic essentially in space in that regard. Um, Mars has the potential for biology, which is on one hand super cool, on the other hand could be a risk, right? Um, and so that's that's another one. Another sort of in the different is that um, uh, Mars can get really cold and then down at the equator on a warm day it can get up to you know freezing and then it can drop 120 degrees at night you know um, you know it's a it's further away and so like in the more northern latitudes um, planet is tilted so its winters are tend to be more severe but it gets so cold up there that carbon dioxide which is freezes out and you get snow there and lots of it um and so it's a really different kind of place it's a lot of times people look at those pictures coming in from curiosity and they think they're in the atacama desert or they're you know the gobi desert or whatever and it's really misleading um, because it's a, uh, it's really more like going up K2 or Mount Everest times a thousand and, and, and if not 10,000. And that's where the right mindset where you might have a few frozen bodies along the way. Um, because it is really dangerous. Now, having said that, um, I, you know, human beings have learned to, you know, go up Mount Everest and K2 and they will do so more. They'll, they will learn to get all the way out to Mars and, and essentially create human civilization out there. Um, it won't look like it does here, but it, on the other hand, it'll have many of the exact same attributes that we all come to expect here on this planet. And I guess the other weird experience would be that lower gravity. Yeah, so that's actually a really fun one. You know, um, it, and I would say, that, you know, so the one third the gravity, the moon's one sixth the gravity. You know, so in a nutshell, you know, you know what that means is that when you jump, you're going to jump a lot higher. <laughs> I mean, when you get right down to it, you know, um, 
that actually could be problems because like on the moon the suits were kind of awkward and if you watch a lot of the video of the people who walked on the moon they fell all the time because because they're essentially you know their center of gravity is not right and then they're they're bouncing higher and you know and and so that will be a challenge um the in space piece is also fascinating for getting out there because it takes about six to nine months to get all the way out to mars and then you, you know a lot of the trajectories that people look at nowadays they generally assume that you're in the martian system either in orbit or on the ground for about 500 days so the planets can line up and then you have another six to nine months to come back you know and if you something goes wrong and you can't land for whatever reason or if the initial missions are just orbital missions to kind of get our sea legs on doing this, if you will, space legs, I guess, um, that you could be in space 1,100 days. And so how the human body you know, handles zero gravity, how, um, the, and there are big problems, you know, muscles atrophy when you're in space, bones start to decalcify because bones need to be exercised. Um, and so how, you know, we think we can handle it on the space station for six month cruise, but, you know, but, you know, how does that work for a three year mission? You know, that's a, that's going to be, there's some real work to be done to kind of really close those gaps in our, in our understanding. So let's talk about the criteria for a place to land on Mars. And I guess, how long have people been thinking about this problem? Because I, I know I've read books, you know, as a child, <laughs> you know, 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, people yeah. proposing different interesting places on Mars that, that would be a, a great place to send human explorers. Oh, how has the history, I guess, of, of this search can we talk about that yeah I, I, that's a really fun topic for me because we're learning Frazier I mean and part of this is just iterating on it and figure and it's a lot of detective work and I'll give you some examples of it so first of all we've been landing rovers you know for yeah, for decades now I think the first one was in the 1998 time frame um, if I recall correctly and there goes a lot of work to try to figure out where you can land these things and that and and a lot of this work, and then where you're sending it so that it's scientifically interesting. So there, you know, there are two things. You, um, for a while, when we landed at Mars, there, there wasn't our accuracy on landing wasn't super great, and so you really had to pick areas to be careful about hitting rocks when you when you actually are landing. And so that kind of constrained the science that you that we could do. But science is the other big driver here you know when you go there you're on another planet you know <laughs> you know we want to learn about it and you know want to do civilization changing science and so picking really cool places so as we've iterated along we've actually gotten we've become much more precise on where we land which in turn Fraser allows us to pick even cooler places because we can go there and despite the fact that there might be rocks or cliffs nearby as long as we can precisely land then we can actually drop in a more interesting place. And so, um, you know, uh, and we've gotten better and better. Now, when humans go, it's it's even a more, five times, if not a hundred times more interesting problem because you, there are a number of things you want to be thinking about. One, you, you want to make sure that when they land that you don't hit rocks or anything like that, the same hazard avoidance things that you want to be concerned about. Um uh, but that's pretty simple because with human spaceflight, we're going to have beacons. We're going to have, we're going to be able to 
pinpoint land these things and that I'm absolutely certain. So then other drivers to give you just some of them is um, uh, to, I think we learned from the Apollo missions that when you go, you really want to be um, uh, building up infrastructure. Space Station has actually taught us this. When you, you know, we put spare parts up there, we put spare food, and all that kind of stuff. They did this in Antarctica too. They they have McMurdo, so they have ships that can get in there. They bring in spare supplies, spare food. Everything, because when a bad winter hits or things break, you want to be able to handle that. And Mars will be no different. So you're going to want to pick a place, probably aiming for it to be a semi-permanent base so that you can stockpile things and start building up habitats and rovers and that kind of thing. And so really getting um, a place that is uh, interesting and and that allows you to do that is key. So some of the factors that matter um, uh, is that, to drive the cost down of uh, missions to Mars, you really want to be producing propellant locally at Mars. And so um, the, 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 the most likely propellant sources will be methane and oxygen as the oxidizer. And so you can make methane as long as you've got a carbon molecule and a hydrogen. And so getting um, access to water uh, is really important uh, for picking these sites and making sure you can produce a lot of water so you can make methane. And then oxygen can either come out of that process or you can pull it out of the atmosphere. We have the MOXIE experiment right now, uh, and it is producing carbon dioxide. Uh, it is producing um, oxygen from the carbon dioxide atmosphere. So we're already learning to do that. But the next step is to figure out how to produce water. And then... So that's probably the big one, you know, but over time we'll want other things. Um, no doubt we'll try to figure out which minerals and all those kinds of things are there to support operations. But the second, the, the other one is that we want to do really cool science. And so, and so that's something that our, our directorate really worries about is picking sites that are just amazing. And so the frontier at Mars has really been focused on following the water. Um, so, um, uh, and that's, that's really what we've been doing to try to understand whether or not, for example, Mars had life. Uh, now the, the, we are moving more towards accessing the subsurface and the subsurface ice. I, Mars actually had oceans and rivers and glaciers, and a lot of that water is actually still there. It's just, you can think of it simply as largely covered in dirt, or as they call it, regolith, um, and, and dust, and is buried there. But we know um, that there is major deposits of water, ice there. And my suspicion is that that will end up being a driver, but for science, it's definitely a high priority um, uh, target, because you can drill down into that, and you get a snapshot of the climate at Mars over time, and there's a lot of belief that if life existed on Mars, it migrated down into the subsurface um, and is to escape things like the radiation environment. Um, and we see um, life moving into really uh, uh, extreme locations like that in Antarctica. Antarctica is actually really good in terms of teaching us. Life forms exist inside rocks, to give you an example. In the Antarctic. <laughs> right. Uh, um, and so we we'll might find that on Mars. Right, right. And so the idea is you try to pick a spot where you could really do this kind of research. You know, so you can imagine when crews go there, we, it's hard to do it with a robot, but you can imagine that when crews go there, we may have them drilling, you know, deep into that so that we get that snapshot. That, 
and you know uh, of the climate there. We get uh, we get to see whether you know that there's a we can detect life, and that's probably a, going to end up being a major priority for scientists and, and our scientist explorers when they land on the planet. I mean, when I think about say the the large scale parts of Mars. I mean, you talk about this need for water. Well, we know there's tons and tons of it at the poles, as much water as you could ever need. And it's sitting right there on the surface with the polar ice caps. But maybe it's a more hostile environment with colder temperatures, maybe less interesting for life. So is there like a like, I'm trying to think, like, where do you put your finger on the scale on either side? Well, we need a lot of, you know, I've heard a lot of proponents who say, no, the poles started the poles because you got the water and the water yeah. drives the whole thing. So there's a lot of things that factor in there. So a couple of them, just to give you a sense of it. Um, in the ideal world, you'd want to be out the equator um, from an engineering standpoint, because um, the spin of the planet actually helps you launch. Um, it, you essentially are using the speed of the spin down there to do that, and that reduces the propellant you have to produce locally, and it just makes it a lot easier. It's also warmer down there, um, uh, uh, and so that's you know the humans are going to be in suits and they're going to be in habitats and rovers. They're not going out for a walk. And you're right for the reasons that we talked about, but the machines do better when it's warm. And so being down the equator would be ideal from that perspective. Um, the problem is, is that when you start looking at water sources, the equator is warmer and therefore drier. It, you can think of it simply. And so there is a sweet spot somewhere that we probably um, end up looking at, um, which is probably in these mid latitudes, you know, like 30, you know, 35 degrees north, something like that. And there are a lot of other places where we have these ice deposits, but they tend to be further, a little closer to the poles. Um, and, but you still get a lot of that spin effect and the temperatures are not that bad. And those are the, the sort of the drivers I think that we'll end up on. We're going to need a lot of creative people helping us figure out where the, that, the, that initial base goes. Um, because the equipment is so expensive to get there that you're not going to, you're probably not going to do multiple landings and then, and then, and then, and, uh, and not build up that infrastructure. And they're so far from any support systems. You know, at the earth, that it, it, it's even more important that you really think through a logistics supply buildup. You know, space station, you know, is really a great analog in that regard, but it is different. You know that on space station, if something goes wrong, you can undock and get at, back on Mother Earth really, really quickly. If you're on Mars and something goes wrong, you know, it could be years before someone gets – and that movie, The Martian, is not too far off. In fact, we work closely with them. It's not too far off in that regard um, before you get help. And it's not – and you can't even just talk to people and say, help me with this easily because – I used to be a capsule communicator for on, on uh, for the space station, and you know, and we would sometimes say, "Put a camera right over your shoulder," and we could actually help them walk through it real time. We would even bring the smart people in and say, hey, "Why don't you talk with them directly?" And we'd walk through it. But when you're at Mars, you know, you it, to say, "Hey, I got a problem." If, if the planets aren't in the right place, that can take up to 22 minutes just for the "Hey, I got a problem" to get all the way back to Earth. And then for assuming we're listening, right? 
and then we we have an answer for them, then you know the answer is probably going to be standby. That standby is going to take 22 minutes to get back. That's a 44 minute round trip in the worst case, and so. No, but that makes the importance of logistics a lot higher in my mind. You know, and in many respects, this isn't new. We deal with it on the space station. We dealt with it down in Antarctica. They, um, they learned through the School of Hard Knocks, even in the early days of exploration, including Jamestown and a number of other places, that you can live and die by logistics. Um, and, and that's, you know, so building, a, you know, finding the people to pick a place that is, that has the right resources that we need and that is compelling from a science perspective to sort of drive that. And then you're probably heading towards a set, an initial base that you will then branch out from and explore further from there. Um, and, and I think history points us all in these directions. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think people's expectations when those first astronauts go to Mars, and even when we watch TV shows and movies and stuff, often they're right out there with their drilling rig and looking for the for the microbes, trying to find the water, whatever it is. And it feels a lot more like it's it's going to be so much time spent just securing that foothold that all the work is going to be in in making the place safer and more redundant for a long time before you can really feel safe enough to get outside and start to do some of that interesting science because the safety of the astronauts is on the line. So I totally get that perspective and I get that. But I think we've learned with exploration efforts in the past that we can do both. Um, the, the trick is to think through it sooner than later. Um, so, yeah. and, and so right now it's actually very exciting because there are a number of efforts underway to actually look at what the high priority objectives are for when humans land on our second planet. And, and so that we can start figuring out how to do it and then get it done as efficiently as possible so that they do have the time, for example, to do what we call assembly and checkup. And it just basically means hooking stuff up, making sure it's all right. You know, and there's a lot of work. Your, your, your surmise that that's a big time consumer is exactly right. That on the space station, we spent years, you know, hooking that stuff up. We were doing some science in that time frame, but it is a lot better now that all that initial hookups have been done. Um, and it's going to be key. And I, I, I think that we'll have to really think through that so we can make sure it's as easy as possible um, for the people to, that will be there to get it done. But I am absolutely convinced that those first crews will be bringing back um, you know, significant amounts of samples from this, this new planet. Uh, and it will be transformative in terms of our understanding of how planets and therefore our, our, our planet works too. So what are some surprising challenges that maybe people aren't familiar with for choosing a landing site on Mars or, or you know, um, actually going through the landing? Uh, so there's a, okay, uh, this is great. So let me just, let me do it in two parts. Um, number one, we'll do what's the other things that are challenging about you know, finding it. And then secondly, going through the landing, because they're really two different things and they're really yeah, cool. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So uh, let's just give you some on the idea of what it takes um, to picking a spot. So um, uh, 
for example, right now, we were, when we sent a, la- uh, the, we have a uh, satellite in orbit around Mars right now with a radar, and that radar was not intended to look for ice sheets. It was looking for deep aquifers. So we chose a frequency that is looking for these lakes of un- underground water way deep. We had no clue that we were going to find these ice sheets right next to the surface and sometimes popping right up. In fact, at Mars, you can actually, now that we've gotten smarter, we can actually see uh, meteorites hit Mars, and then when they hit, they strip the dirt away, and then you can see pure water ice there. And we weren't expecting to find any of that, and there are real gaps in our knowledge as to exactly where those ice sheets are and how far, how close we can get them to the equator that we're working to plug uh, in terms of those gaps. There is actually another source of water, which is called hydrated minerals, and these are basically uh, dirts and rocks that have water molecules or or hydroxide OH molecules in them. It's a little difficult to envision producing large amounts of water in in an efficient way uh, uh, from an energy standpoint um, with that. So my suspicion is we will end up using these ice deposits that are just begging for it. So we need to understand where they are better. Another thing is Mars has these global dust storms. And so, for example, we had one that killed our amazing rover opportunity. Um, it had been um, that 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 mission was supposed to last, I think, about three months, 90 days. And it ended up being like 15, 16 years. It was a long time. It was incredible. And but what did get it is that it did not it had solar arrays that it was using for power. And we had a dust storm that occurred at Mars that lasted, you know, for almost seven months, basically. And it's so severe that it blocks out almost all a lot of sunlight and it just couldn't produce power and it had batteries discharged and it died. Um, so, um, so a couple things. One, uh, you, you want to pick places where there aren't dust storms all the time. You know, the places that have more dust storms than do, we need to understand whether they're better than we do. We can't predict it right now. We can't predict, you know, we know that, you know, um, in certain seasons, the dust storms occur more, but we can't say, it's, you know, like you can see a hurricane, right? You can see, you can see it forming and then you can, you know, you can, they can predict where it's going and that kind of, we don't have that kind of predictive quality with weather mm-hmm. at Mars at all. And so, it's tricky to steer clear of a global dust storm. You can't. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, that's one problem. The second thing is Mars has these big, because it's, it's basically transporting dust everywhere. It's got these big areas where, um, it's got just big, you know, like things of dust and you don't want to be operating in those areas. So we can measure that. We can actually find places that, you know, don't, you know, have that. Um, uh, for landing, to give you an example, we also want to be able to land. You know, we're not going to have landing pads and that kind of thing for a while. I'm absolutely convinced we will, but initially we'll be landing. And so you want to be landing on stuff that can bear these big rockets coming in and throwing flames out. So understanding where bedrock is is really important. So these are all examples of things. And it's not a terribly long list. Um, and I think we're rapidly getting a good handle on those things and many of which we're actually getting smarter about day by day uh, that will help inform that. So I I think we're actually doing a decent job of getting it. There's a lot more that we need to learn, but between the United States and a lot of other countries that are aiming towards Mars, I'm I'm pretty confident or optimistic that we're going to get it before we're at Santa Cruz. And then in terms of landing, I do want to talk a little bit about that because 
Um, when you land, you know, so a rover right now um, weighs about a metric ton. It's basically an SUV. And so when you, you know, we've got, we do some really funky things to land that thing. You know, you've got um, big parachutes that go open, and then you've got uh, this thing called a sky crane, which is basically kind of holds the thing, and then it sort of drops it on a cable, but it's got jets firing so you don't dig out holes in the thing. And it's really, it is a tribute to all the people who came up with those landing uh, capabilities, but they're hard. Um, for human class landers, they're at least 20 times that size. And so parachutes, uh, the general feeling is yeah, we've yeah. exceeded the capability of parachutes yeah, to really yeah. help with that. And so if you, so the way you, you do it is you basically come in and you are firing jets, which they call supersonic retro of propulsion um, and then you're actually trying to dip down really low in the atmosphere um, so that you have as much air because remember I said it's like being up at 135,000 feet in our atmosphere even at the surface and so you want to dip as low as possible go as low in terms of altitude as possible too so that you can get enough air to help slow you down um, and, and and you're doing all those things. So if you look out the window, it's gonna be a pretty Yahoo ride when you when you come <laughs> in. It's terrifying. You're gonna be close to the ground, screaming. Yeah, and 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 you know, we'll. I, I think we're we're generally we're quickly getting there in terms of learning how to do that. But we have a lot of work to to really hmm. nail that. Um, but so the point is, then you have this big thing that's got jets that are slowing it down. These are these are like these are like really big rockets. And so they will tend to dig out. It's basically that. And it's throwing dirt at three, four times the speed of sound, dirt and rocks. So we have to really kind of think through how you manage that because that rock is like a bullet when it's going. And if you've put habitats down there or, you know, rovers and you've sunk, made a really big investment to get in there, the last thing you want to do is go riddle them with a bunch of bullets. And, and so, you know, but these are, these are, uh, largely, I think we understand the problems well enough that we can do it. And eventually you will see things like civil engineering coming into play on the second planet in ways we've never even thought about it. Um, you know, you're not going to make concrete at Mars, but you'll, you, there are some really creative ideas so that, we, so you can actually create a surface that can better handle those loads and that heat you know, and the acoustical energy of, of rockets coming down there. And I'm convinced we'll figure all those things out, but they're really cool problems to go solve. Yeah, so, I mean, with the coming in sideways, yeah. I mean, I guess there are ways. I mean, I don't think, I don't know of anybody testing the, I mean, I know that various spacecraft have done some aero braking, like on, but they tested aero braking on Mars with some of the missions that went to Mars. It's been tested, I think, on Venus. Um, but, but I, I can't think of anybody testing like something like Starship. And I know maybe that'll be a future test on Starship is they'll, they'll come in at 135 feet of altitude, hit the, hit the atmosphere sideways and see if they can bring themselves, if they can land in the air and then, Come down to the surface, right? Uh, it's, it's interesting. 
So there are, there, it's a reason why the United States was the only country for decades to successfully land. And Chinese have now done it, and I'm convinced that we'll see the Europeans there soon. Um, but that is really hard. And these are small, small landers compared to it. You know, you know the ones we sent '97. You know, that that's like university rover projects are that size. It's it's like literally this big. You know, yeah. these, these, these current ones are like cars, like I said, but these, these other things are not. These are big things. And, yeah. Um, and yeah, and I know there's an issue, there's like there's a risk with even landing these on the moon, that you land one of these big spacecraft on the moon, you're going to kick up regolith that's going to go into orbit around the moon and create a, a sandstorm that will then prevent any other spacecraft attempting to land, it's probably going to come back and pelt your spacecraft later on and, and sandbox. We don't know the impact, pardon the pun of that. And and so I think about that idea, like you've got these giant starships landing, trying to get close to your base, but far enough that the supersonic bullets that are blasting out in all directions aren't taking out everybody at the base. Like you want it on that over that mountain over there, like you want on the other side of that ridge. No, that's so exactly get there. Yeah, no, yeah. That's exactly, so there's sort of the current thinking is that, you know, you basically pick places to land that are, in, you know, have a ridge, right? You know, like in a crater or something like that. Of course, that's big a problem. How do you get out of the crater, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, like, then you need a road, and then you got to get from where the landing site to yeah. the bay. Like, like the... Like these problems just compound, and it, and I'm I'm guessing that a lot of these, like these insights, are dawning on the people working on these landing challenges, are only possible because of the increased knowledge that you have. You have Mars reconnaissance orbiter. You have these various spacecraft that are studying the surface and the atmosphere and so on. And now you've learned more. And what a surprise. It turns out to be a more challenging problem than you had, had pre previously believed. So what is a, a problem that is starting to dawn on you mm -hmm. that is probably going to be bigger than people had originally expected? Oh, a fun question. Um, let me think about that one. I'll tell you one that's an easier one, maybe, and then let me let me think about your because your question's a really cool one. Um, I, you know, so we we definitely need to better understand where the water supplies are on Mars, and you know, and the ice for science for sure, and probably for ice for you. Um, and we need to do that. You have to have another radar go out there that has the right frequency to actually figure out where it is close to the surface. Now that we know that there's ice there, and but that's mostly an engineering problem. Um, uh, so let me see. I think having uh, two things. I would say um, to, to more specifically answer your question. Number one is that I I think uh, how to answer this. The technology stuff, I'm not so worried about per se. I mean, they're they're hard. We'll solve those. I I'm, I think you start to see, you know, the hardest ones entry descent landing. I think anyone who's been thinking about this problem would tell you that. But we, I think we have a good path to you know to do that. Um, the the larger issue is that you know it's a different way of operating because these things are so far. These Mars is so far away. You can't just call them, you know. And and learning to really you know, allow those human beings to, you know, to, to provide the, 
uh, support systems with those kinds of time delays and, and, and to help them not just technically, but also psychologically and on so many other fronts is going to be something and picking the right people to know, right? Because, you know, I would say I had a lot, I worked at Space Shuttle and I worked at Space Station and I would say, you know, for Space Shuttle, you know, we, those were 14 day, 10 day missions in that ballpark, you know, and, and the priority was on getting, usually getting the scientists there and, and we didn't really spend as much time thinking about compatibility. You know, uh, when you talk about going on space station for six months at a time, like you're in a different ball game and a lot of, and we had to unlearn a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, on a 14 day mission, anyone can put up with a jerk, you know, but no right. one wants to put up with a jerk for six months when you're stuck in a can with them, you know, and you yeah. can multiply. You remember that Mount Everest and K2, you probably multiply that by a thousand for Mars because the minute you burn those engines to go out to Mars, you, you know, you're not seeing your family and everybody else you love for three years on, on a, on a typical trajectory that we often look at. There are some options for two year trajectories, but that's still a long time, you know, and so really, um, you know, figuring out a way to help these crews, um, you know, be, you know, succeed and also picking the right people and then giving them the right support systems or is, is really, I think, going to be the coolest challenge here. And then, um, so that's number one. The other thing which I would say is a soft skill thing too, which is that, uh, if you assume that one country is doing Mars or doing the moon, you know, um, it's, it'd be really expensive to do it that way, but it's going to be a partnered thing, you know, um, and you're going to have to be at partnerships of equals. And there are just, those are kind of new kinds of relationships. You know, you know, I work in a group called the International Mars Exploration Working Group where we have 28 space agencies and these space agencies, almost all, all a bunch of them have been doing space stuff for years and, you know, they, and they do some really bold things, Fraser. So, you know, you gotta kind of learn to work with them in the, and treat them like equals and, and then, you know, count on them to do their parts and then, you know, figure out the parts that work well in terms of, you know, letting them do it and then make it a community of human beings effort. And, you know, we know a lot from space station and from other efforts, but I think we're gonna, it's gonna be a real challenge, you know, figuring out how to do that going all the way out to Mars. But I'm convinced that to do it in any kind of time frame that I think any of us would aspire to, you know, we're going to have to figure out how to do that even as quickly. And it's going to be a good, a really an amazing challenge. Yeah, it's interesting. That time delay, I think, you know, you mentioned that sort of early on in your quest, in your answer to the question, and that 45 minute round trip time at the worst case scenario, it gets better when they're closest. But that time delay, I think, is going to be an insidious friction that percolates through every part of it because I can just imagine someone's in a desperate situation and they're like what do I do here and then 45 you know and then you like uh you know you tell them can you ask him to remove the lens cap and so like it's 45 minutes for you at least him to get an answer back that he's removed the lens cap then he removes the lens cap and then it's another 45 minutes to get the answer so it's an hour and a half when lives could be on the line and I think the and so you're going to need personalities who are very independent very able to work efficiently without needing to be able to talk to the base camp without needing permission for every single thing that they do which is kind of anathema to the way nasa has worked traditionally like you know when astronauts are on board the space station they have a nice checklist and they're talking to ground control 
ongoing. And, and, and then, so you're going to need to have people who can sort of deal with these situations, but then also be in a kind of a collaborative environment where you're trying to work as a team and, and so on with that cut off. And I, and I don't think that's a dynamic. I mean, we have, you know, submarine crews, but, and so on. But I think in general, in the modern era of space exploration, we don't have that kind of delay mixed with teamwork. No, exactly. And it's a couple of points that you're spot on. And a couple of things I would add to that. Uh, first of all, on space station, when we, so with space shuttle, you know, you had like a, that 10 day mission or whatever, you know, something in that time frame. Everything is planned down to like the minute, you know? Yep. And then on space station, we had to unlearn that because we had crews, you know, we were there for six months. Last thing any of us want is to have big brother telling us everything to do every minute. It's me. You had time to go to the bathroom. Yeah. 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 Okay. Now you're going to smile for public affairs events, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, and so we had to kind of learn to um, empower them to manage it on certain tasks on their own. So they have essentially like a job jar they can knock stuff off. And we had to grow to that. And 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 I would say that from thinking about Mars, you're, you're spot on. I do believe that um, we're going to have to move aggressively towards artificial intelligence um, to help support these human beings all the way out there um, because there's there's too much to remember, you know, and, and computers are really good that way. And I, and I think we're really going to have to start figuring out a way. I always call it put MCC in a box, but um, for those time-critical things that you so correctly um, talk about, you're going to want to have a machine that is actually can do a lot of it for you and is maybe self-reasoning and self-think, you know, self-learning, um, supporting you. I would say a nice hal, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. You'll pod bay doors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're going to want that uh, capability because it's going to really, it could save people's lives. Mm -hmm. without any question and i think and there's a hesitancy in the space communities across this planet that to move in that direction because intel artificial intelligence systems are very dense computers you know, the chips are very dense and so they're very susceptible to radiation damage um and so <laughs> that does bring back up the how worry yeah yeah so so there's like a creative tension there but i will say that a lot of these commercial launch companies have actually saw that you know they'll just have like you know five cores operating in parallel with modern computers you know and they have a voting schemas and we'll We'll move towards that for these Mars missions. But I think having really advanced uh, computing capabilities are key. And the only other thing which I would say to what you're saying is that your characterization of it is perfect, which is that um, you really, you're going to have multicultural, multinational crews. And so uh, uh, people who are good not only in remote operations, but also in multicultural um, team settings. It will be a very high priority. I believe I think I get the right skill sets right, you know, there. Um, so, for example, you, you have to have a doctor because you because of that time delay, you, you know, if, if someone's got an appendicitis, someone's got to be able to do it. And then you got to be able to handle it. The doctor gets the appendicitis, you know. And, and so it, you, there are a lot of smart people at you know, Johnson Space Center and other places that are working on these problems. But they're really cool problems to figure out you know, how you support them remotely. And you're right. The time delay is a big challenge. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I, I, I'm really fortunate. I get to interview a lot of astronauts. And, and when you do, you get why they were chosen. 
Like, you're like, I see why you're an astronaut. You are so smart, but also really nice. Like, I would be just glad to work side by side with you on problems for days on end where our lives are on the line. Like, I can tell you've got my back and you're not a bully. And, you know what I mean? Like, like it's going to be a good workplace. And I just wonder what the additional factor, that, that variable of the long delay times I don't think add one. Yeah, I'll add one additional personality requirement to these astronauts. They have to be super smart. They have to be really nice and work well together, but also be able to take leadership and and handle pressure independently when things are breaking and they can't get any expert right. advice. They have to solve this problem on their own. And so, so I, I would share this with you too, because at your spot, I, it's a cool the way you've actually been doing all this. Um, uh, you're, you're spot on about all of that. I, I would say we're not going to know everything. It'll probably the first initial Mars missions will probably be, have some bumps that we're not expecting, but that's how we'll learn, right? Um, the multicultural piece we've gotten a lot better about because space station is multicultural, right? So we've kind of learned. Um, there is a, another creative tension that comes into play, though, because on the space station, when we had three-person crews, you know, sometimes because of language barriers or because you know, people were picked because, you know, one country had two slots and then the other one had one slot. And so they, sometimes getting the chemistry right was, was a challenge because of those things. When we jumped to six people crews, a lot of that went away. And so... Um, the number of people that go is important, not just for what you can do and have the skill sets, but there's just enough um, uh, uh, social interaction dynamics that actually allow people to have a more cohesive team is where I would say it. And I think in figuring out that sweet spot, because for Mars, every kilogram is going to matter in terms of pushing you know this up so if you add another person you know you're going to it's got food you got water you got to have you know you got to have the equipment for them to do science experiments it's just this whole cascade effect that is somewhat correlated to the number of people that go and so there is this tension about having the right number of people going by trying to make it affordable. And I think there's going to be um, a lot of interaction in terms of settling in on a number. I mean, right now we're assuming four people typically on our architectures. I'm, you know, I, you know, I've saw some of the three person crew, you know, challenges. And I, I also saw how smooth it was with, with you know, six or more. And so I get a little nervous with the number four. Um, but I think, you know, You'd rather six. Yeah, I, I would rather personally with what I've seen see six, but I totally understand the the the, the mechanic the orbital mechanics and engineering and cost problems with doing it. Um and so there there's gonna be a lot of discussion as we start architectures that allow us to go through this, you know. And they and I think I've given you a sense of that phrase, but you know, you have enough human beings. What the Woo! What's up, guys? So, I'm cutting this off a little short. Uh, probably it only gives me two hours on my, uh, on my, uh, on my, on my, on my, uh, I get two hour links on my, on my uh, podcast uh, episodes. Uh, but if I can get more likes, get, uh, 
and I don't know people. I don't know if people like my podcast or not. I'm trying some things that are a little bit different. I really need feedback from you guys. Uh, it would help a million. Uh, you guys always feel free to call um, in on any time. Um, this podcast is your podcast. Actually, this is more of your podcast than my podcast. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I couldn't do this without you guys. Uh, I, uh, I'm... I was going to start cutting these shorts of videos to, to talk about them, to, to uh, kind of discuss and go over some of the, you know, cause some of the cool things and some of the whatever things. Uh, let me know if that is something that works for you guys or if you like me to um, just get on and read about them more. Uh, uh, let me know. Um, George. Yes, George from uh, Australia. George, hit me up. Let me know. Um, Caps, caps, caps. You hit me up as well. Let me know. Uh, leave me some, leave comments. Uh, let me know if this works or if it's better off the way I was doing it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, I'm going to be doing podcasts all day because it's Tuesday. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I will, uh, just, if you see me up, up on live, man, hit me up. I will be here. Um, everybody's skin the game 17. You're awesome. Thank you. For your support, Christopher 